Our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. That's page 1014 in the Bibles there in your seats if you want to use those to follow along. I do appreciate uh, your patience, or what I hope is your patience, with uh, our start in 1 Corinthians, and then we came to 1 Peter, and we are going back to 1 Corinthians, but with Easter coming, just seemed like a lot of back and forth to go back to 1 Corinthians only to stop for Easter. So we're going to push through in 1 Peter until Easter. We uh, hear, as Peter writes to the elect exiles in various regions uh, on the edges of the empire, those who are following Christ, but are dispersed and feel the distinction between following Christ and what their neighbors believe and how they live their lives. So let's continue to read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 10. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we seek to join our hearts together as together we seek to sit under your word, to have it have its way with us as you, by your spirit, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to to what you have for us this morning, that we might be instructed, that we might be encouraged, that we might be fed, that we might, where need be, be convicted. Lord, would I preach and speak only that which you have for your people, and would all that falls short be quickly forgotten, like chaff in the wind. This we pray, depending on your spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen. As we've been looking at 1 Peter, we see Peter writing to a group of people, a people who have been rejected, who are following a rejected Messiah and living on the margin of society at the edges of the empire. And while we uh, live in a place where Christianity is more acceptable and a place that is more powerful and has more influence, most of us know what it's like to experience rejection. To be passed over for a job that we were hoping to get or a promotion that we were seeking after. To pursue someone romantically and have them turn us down. 
Just the simple rejection of being hung up on hurts a great deal. I still remember the, the first time during COVID when I realized that someone was distancing themselves from me physically because they were seeking to be careful in light of the disease. And that felt like a rejection, an understandable one, but nonetheless painful. And it can be all the more painful for us to be pushed aside, to be questioned, to lose relationship when we are following after Christ. Perhaps that's one of the things I should have prayed for when praying for the missionist team is for their faithfulness because no doubt many of them will share good news of Jesus to people who need that good news only for them to reject it. Then for them to ask, well, was it me? Was it the message? What should I do with that? Rejection is painful and it often entails loss. Loss of opportunity, loss of a relationship, a sense of of what was being no longer. And that can raise all types of questions for us. What's wrong with me? Is it my fault? Am I okay? What's going to happen to me? Do I matter? Sometimes rejection can feel like death. And it's in this position of rejection, of repudiation and distanciation that the recipients of Peter's letter are struggling What does it mean for them that they are being ignored, that they are being rejected, that they feel like outsiders in the land in which they live for following Christ? What does that rejection mean about them? And as Peter gets into it, he first of all encourages them to change their perspective. Because so many of us, the ways that we live our lives have been discipled, have been trained to view our sense of dignity, our identity, our significance, our meaningfulness, our purpose, according to what others think of us. Whether they accept us, like us, or whether they ignore us or reject us. Peter turns to Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118 and Isaiah Chapter 8, and says, What you are experiencing was expected. For you are following Jesus, who is the anticipated cornerstone of God's work of building a people for himself, and yet he was rejected. But his rejection is the basis for him becoming the cornerstone. You should be examining your life, your sense of identity and purpose and significance, not through what people think about you, because the people who are rejecting you are those who rejected Jesus. Whether your neighbors who don't embrace him or the religious leaders who should have known who Jesus was, who put him to death on a cross through the hands of the Romans. Peter invites the church to understand themselves not through the lens of what the world says about them but through what Jesus the rock, the stone rejected who has become the cornerstone says about us. Peter calls those in Galatia and Bithynia and us today not to evaluate ourselves based on our acceptance or rejection by the world 
but according to what is ours in Christ as we come to him. As we come to Jesus, we see in Christ that we have life in him, that we have a new community, a priestly purpose, and a secure status. That whether we feel good or we feel a loss, that anything that is given up for the sake of Christ as we come to him is richly rewarded because in him we have this life and community and purpose and security. And so Peter encourages them not to look at themselves through what the people around them say, those who are stumbling over Christ, but what Christ has done says about them. He says, as you come to Christ. Now, in order for us to understand what is ours in Christ through coming to Christ, we do at least need to ask the question, what does it mean to come to Christ? There is the sense in which that is a one-time event as we turn to him in faith, repenting of our sins and trusting him, him as Lord and Savior. But for those to whom Peter's writing, most of them have already done that. They've already put their faith in Christ. They've already been baptized. They've already been made followers. And so it's about the continual process of coming to him day by day, moment by moment. In order to understand what it means to come to Christ, we need to acknowledge where we're coming from. That before we ever felt the rejection of others, the pain of alienation or even persecution for following Christ, we were first rejectors of God. That ever since Adam and Eve chose the fruit over God's command, we have been picking and choosing things over and above God himself and our idolatry. We are coming to Christ as those who once were rejectors and rebels of him. To come to him necessarily means a rejection of finding our sense of worth and accomplishment in what others say. God's voice needs to be louder than the voice of our neighbors, our friends, or even our family members. And lastly, coming to Christ is to accept that he is the one, that God is the one that builds. Notice how it says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Sometimes as Christians who want to obey, who want to serve, we have this sense that we are going to build God's kingdom. That we are going to make it happen. That the church is on us. And without in any way denying the commandments of Scripture, the call to serve, we need to realize that it's God who builds the church. It's God who builds the spiritual house. That's why we come to Christ, so that we might be anchored in the foundation of Christ, who is the source of all that God will do in and through us as we seek to follow him. Coming to Christ is about rejecting our re former rejection of Christ listening to Christ's voice over the world, and allowing God to have his way with us. And when that happens, as we come to Christ, we find in him new life, new community, a priestly purpose, and a secure status. First, that new life. Coming to Christ is trust in Jesus who lived, in Jesus who died, Jesus who rose, and, who, and Jesus who now reigns at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And the description of Jesus as a living stone is a ref, 
reference to the present reality of his resurrection and reign. That Jesus wasn't just a historical figure. He didn't just throw himself on the wheels of history in order to bring about change. Jesus is not dead and buried, but our hope is in one who has conquered death. One who, despite the rejection of those in the world, the religious leaders who said he is a false messiah, the Roman authorities who were willing to put him to death to maintain peace, despite their rejection of him, Jesus was God's son sent as the chosen one to be the foundation for what God was building. And therefore, Peter calls those who trust in Jesus living stones. That is, you and I who seek Christ, who come to him over and over again in faith. That though we are still awaiting resurrection, that the life of Christ is at work in us now. That the resurrection life of Christ that we are one day awaiting to experience fully is present with us even now. The passage says he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're not waiting to walk in light, but that light has already shone upon us now. And we walk no longer as those dead in our trespasses and our sins, but as those that God has made alive together with Christ. Ephesians 5, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Though in our choosing for our own way, in our listening to the instructions of the world, we were dead, we are now alive because of Christ. And consider what this means for those for whom following Christ feels like death. Because they are on the edges of society. They, they, they don't have influence among their guilds in the local economy. These are not political power figures. And so the day-by-day life of worshiping Jesus and caring for their families may feel like a grind, and they may ask, what am I doing? A lot of them struggling, cut off from their families. Christians were seen as those who couldn't contribute to the life, and so of the life of the empire because they wouldn't worship the other gods, and so they were cast aside. When Christians were no longer useful, they were pushed to the edges, reflecting the very utilitarian nature of how we tend to treat one another apart from Christ. You're only good to me so long as you are beneficial to me. Contrast that with the message of the gospel that the chosen one, the beloved son of God, allowed himself to be rejected, to be put to death on the literal trash heap of the city in order that we who were not useful, we who were dead, might be made alive. So that we could participate in the worship of the living God. As we come to Christ, as we walk with him, we are enabled to live lives as spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. To walk in good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. While we in our sin could do nothing to please God, he makes us alive in Christ. So that our lives can have meaning and purpose now. 
a spiritual house, a priesthood, as those able to contribute to what God is doing in the world. Rather than casting us aside in our sin and our uselessness, he makes us alive and gives us the glorious ability to serve in his name for his glory. This morning in Iowa City, in the church that we had the blessing to serve in for six years, a man is joining the church as a member. It was 12 years ago that he first talked to the pastor of that church. For 12 years, through various struggles and hardships, struggles with pain of things done to him, his own sin, he has been going to that church, and we might say, what good is this? What's happening? It doesn't seem like much is happening. But through through the faithful preaching of the word, through the love of those who walked with this man through all kinds of struggles, he is now this morning going to make public profession of faith before the congregation and be accepted as a member. That though the world might say, this is not a person worth your time or energy, he's been made alive in Christ. Christ takes dead people and makes them alive to the glory of God. When the world says, I have no use for you, God says, I will take the scraps and make them into the beautiful household of God. In Christ, we have new life. And therefore, in Christ, we have a new living community. The living stones of 1 Peter 2 are not scattered in the field, but they are being built by God together to form a new house. We are by God's design in Christ brought into relationship, into connection and structure with one another. As Peter goes on to contrast the church with those who reject Jesus to their own downfall, he describes those who follow Jesus as a chosen race, a holy nation. We've already dealt with some of these issues in terms of chosenness, in terms of God's election and the holiness of the nation as important factors. But notice that these men and women who are scattered through the various regions are described as one people, as one nation. It's not bloodline. It's not their place of origin. It's not their cultural practice. It's not the language that they speak that defines their community. It's them coming to Christ. All those who are in Christ are unified. Peter is not repudiating the reality of ethnicity, of families of origin, or even the nations in which we live. Later on, he'll talk about these societal structures and how we are called to play into them, to submit to them, to be wise in their midst. But all of these things, our nation, our ethnicity, our language, our skin color, even our parents and our brothers and sisters come under our primary status as those in community with God's people. When our following of Christ brings us into conflict that costs us status or comfort among our colleagues and our neighbors, maybe even our spouses, Christ places us within a new family, a larger family, a new nation, a race defined not by birth, but the new birth. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, everyone who has left 
houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And part of the reality of God's faithfulness to that promise is the church. You are my people. I am yours. We belong to a people greater than uh, the residents of Concord or Pembroke or Dunbarton, greater than the residents of New Hampshire or New England or even the United States. One of my prayers for these mission teams, especially those going to Hungary, is that you will see in men and women that don't even speak your own language that you share the most important thing, Jesus. And you have more in common with them than some of the neighbors that you live right next door to. Coming to Christ will result in recognizing our fellow Christians as our primary community. When we ignore our fellow Christians or neglect one another, we are traitors to our people. We may want to please our friends and family, our co-workers, but Jesus is our primary relationship. And if Jesus is our primary relationship, then that means we can't place family or our nation or our political party or our language or our culture above those that Jesus has given to us in himself. Loving Jesus won't make us repudiate the world, won't mean that we're going to kick out our families, we're not going to participate in our government. We're not going to be good co-workers. But it's going to mean that we're going to love them rightly, not to love them for their acceptance of us, but to love them according to the greatest love that there is, the love of Christ that he has shown us and that he is working out among us in his people. In Christ, we have new life. In Christ, we have a, a new community. In Christ, we have a priestly purpose. As a community of living stones, God's people are built into a house for God. We are given a purpose. Instead of having to seek for purpose, to guess what we have to do, to say, what does my life matter? God tells us and then makes us into those with that purpose. Verse 5 describes the followers of Jesus as a holy priesthood. And then verse 9 describes them as a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests. The duty of a priest is to serve in the house of God. We do that by offering sacrifices, saying, God, you are worthy of our praise and our honor and our worship. We offer these gifts to you. And because of what Christ has done, we are able to offer our lives our work, our education, our families, our money, as living sacrifices to God. That means that suddenly, because of the purpose of God for us in Christ, every moment and every task is imbued with new significance. The changing of diapers and the preparing of dinner, the doing of your homework, In Christ glorifies God because you've been made into priests of the King and God of gods and Lord of lords. As we acknowledge that our life is from God in Christ, as we live it for him, we worship. 
with thankful hearts renewed to do God's will, our work cleansed by the blood of Christ has purpose. When we might ask, what good is what I'm doing? What does it matter? I'm not famous. I'm not well known. I'm not appreciated. God says, you are fulfilling the purpose I have for you to bring glory to me, whatever the world says. That priestly work is not merely about us one-on-one with God, but priests are meant as intermediaries, the go-betweens. And so our priestly purpose is not just for us to worship God, but to bring others into worship of God. Certainly we do this in prayer. We pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters. We pray on behalf of our neighbors that we seek to know Christ. We pray for our ruling authorities that they would rule according to God's standards. But we also do it in the way that the priest stood in the declaration of the truth. Part of our offering of spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. To see those who at this point in their life are stumbling over Christ and to say, yes, one who was crucified is a struggle. Yes, following him means sacrifice and loss. Yes, faith is to die to self. But let me tell you how excellent and wonderful it is through that Christ who was rejected and crucified to have life in his marvelous light. All that God has made us in Christ, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, allows us, when people look at us, walk with us, to hear the wonderful news that God brings people out of darkness into light. And this is why worship is so central to who we are in Christ. Why worship is so central to coming to Christ, the living rock. Because time in corporate worship draws us together to see and hear the excellencies of God who has brought us from darkness to light. To be reminded of that truth. To be reminded that we're not on our own. That God intends the individual acts of our worship, the work of evangelism, discipleship, to flow from what God has shaped us together to be through his word. It's it's the difference between saying, hey, I ate at this restaurant once and it was really good, you should go. And someone's saying, well, I, I, you know, yeah, I'd like to go. And you say, well, I don't remember the name of it. I don't actually know the address. Versus saying, this is where I eat every week. I'm going to take you the next time I go. Because I want you to experience Not only how good it is, but how satisfying and nourishing it is day in and day out. The priests offered sacrifices so that the people could come and eat and fellowship with God. God uses us as we follow him to bless others in drawing them to him and fellowship with him. And as we fulfill that status, that purpose of priests of God, we enjoy a special status a secure status. In the face of the loss and alienation that we often experience as we come to Christ, there can sometimes be that niggle in the back of our head. 
We face enough rejection and loss, and sometimes we begin to look for it or expect it even from God. God has been really kind to me. When's the other foot going to drop? Or I'm struggling to fulfill my priestly purpose. I'm struggling to live in community with my brothers and sisters. I feel pretty weak instead of pretty alive. I've been thrown aside enough in life. Is God going to do that to me too? But this whole passage, and especially verse 10, reflect the truth that God is not going to leave us in the lurch. That while our friends or our family, our jobs may abandon us, that God will not. Because God keeps his promises. And he has made us in Christ his treasured, his special possession. While Jesus was rejected by the powers of the day and age, he is described as the precious stone in God's sight. That the cornerstone of the church is, is not just a piece of granite, however great granite is, but it is a precious stone. It is an emerald, it is a diamond, it is a ruby of exquisite value and beauty. And that God has chosen to give that as the foundation to bring to himself a treasured possession. He gave his beloved son, and that means in Christ we are a people in Christ, who are treasured like Christ. We are described here as a people for God's own possession, a people to distinctly belong to him. In Exodus 19, chapter 5, as God was setting up the covenant through Moses to the people who came out through the Exodus, who were coming to the promised land, he said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. The thing is, they didn't. They didn't keep his covenant. They didn't follow the commandments. But God still made them his treasured possession. Our ability to share salvation is because of God's faithfulness to his promises to hold on to Israel, to not repudiate them, but to fulfill his promises to them, to send Jesus who would take up their slack to obey where they disobeyed, to be faithful where they were faithless. Verse 10 is a reflection on the book of Hosea, where the prophet calls out to a faithless, to an idolatrous people who have so repudiated God that they act as those who are not his people. And therefore, they are those who aren't experiencing his mercy, but his discipline. And yet, there in Hosea is the promise that those who were not his people will be called his people. That those who were not experiencing mercy would experience mercy. The promise of God to restore his wandering and faithless people. His promise fulfilled in Christ, so that we who are wanderers, we who may fall short can be marked off as God's treasured possession. Jesus is the confirmation of God making a way for those whom he loves. When Israel fell short, God kept saving and kept redeeming them. And though they did not keep their part of the covenant, God did. We who have come to Christ can rest assured of his love. That in Christ, we are treasured. 
In Christ, we are valued. In Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we are dearly bought. He will not cast us aside. He will not reject us. Coming to Christ may mean rejection for us. It may mean loss. Some of you have already experienced that. Or some of you may be considering this morning areas in your life where you have been unwilling to hand something over to God and are concerned about the loss that that will mean for you, maybe relationally, maybe financially, maybe in terms of time. But as you set aside what the world offers instead for Christ, know that what we find in Christ is greater than any appreciation, any attention, any affirmation of the world, because in Christ we find life. In Christ, we find a community that cannot be taken away from us. In Christ, we have a purpose. What we were made for to glorify God. And in Christ, we have security. That no job, that no position, that no relationship can offer us. The losses we experience may be real, they may be painful. But they are surpassed to be called living stones in the house of God, his treasured possession. So let's come to Christ together. Christ, we come to you now in prayer, not even having sufficient words that we are called to be a priestly people, and yet you give us your spirit that groans on our behalf according to what we truly need, that allows us to call you Abba, Father, in Christ so that we might receive all the spiritual blessings to be your people, to be built up as you provide. Lord, would we come to you day by day, moment by moment, whatever the cost, for the gain in Christ is greater. Amen.